And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on August 2nd, 2022. Glenack has been in the horticulture and landscape industry since 1985. He was fortunate to receive a foundation of education and training through the Longwood Gardens Professional Horticulture Program and a student year with England's Royal Horticulture Society. Since 1997, Glenn has been managing the grounds and urban horticulture of Temple University in Philadelphia. He is a volunteer with the Pennsylvania Big Trees Program documenting Pennsylvania's largest trees and holds the dubious distinction of discovering Pennsylvania's largest known Alanthus altissima, or the tree of heaven. When not in the garden, he prefers exploring wild places, sometimes by bicycle. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Glenn. We're delighted you could be with us. So Glenn, you are the head horticulturalist at Temple University. And I know that you have a wonderful background in getting to that position. So can you give us a little bit of background about your education and your passions in horticulture? Sure, Eva. Well, I was really lucky at, you know, 16, just looking for an after-school job. And I, I stumbled into the, <laughs> the nursery industry uh, with a local garden center and uh, worked for some nurseries and garden centers in central Pennsylvania until uh, the early 90s. Then I found out about the certificate courses at Longwood Gardens. So in 1990 and 91, I completed the certificate of merit courses at Longwood. And during that time, I found out about what was then the PG program. Now it's the professional work program at Longwood. And I was really, really fortunate to get accepted. So that was 1992 to 94 and followed up the two years at Longwood with one year with the Royal Horticultural Society at Whistley Garden in England. And um, yeah, that brought me back to Pennsylvania in 95 and worked on an interesting project in Chad's Ford. It was the development of, a, at that time, a new uh, new house, a new estate, very much an English style estate. And as the construction was wrapping up there, just happened to see literally, you know, in those days, it was an ad in the Philadelphia, the Sunday Inquirer, the Sunday Philadelphia Inquirer yes. for ground supervisor for Temple. And I was interested in, you know, furthering my education, especially in the area of design, applied and was accepted. And so that was uh, fall of 1997. So I've been here for about 25 years and um, I've been the head of the grounds department then since 2008. Right. And that, that was my journey to Temple. <laughs> 
not only do you have the horticulture certificate program from Longwood Gardens, but you also have it from Wisley, which are two internationally recognized institutions and really wonderful education. I can I can say that because I know and I'd, I'd actually teach in the professional horticulture program. And I know what it takes to be, and there's a lot of competition to get into that program too, sometimes 150 people to, to fight for 10 spots. And you have a really diverse background, so you have an international background. So tell us how you apply your skill sets to the campus and how does that work for you? Well, I think the biggest thing is observation. You know, I've just been really fortunate to see a lot of things over a long period of time. And, you, you know, you never stop learning from observation in, in horticulture. And, uh, I mean, those are really the lessons, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, we see, how we see plants yeah. performing in the landscape and also how, you know, how we see them performing in wild places because I do uh, like to spend quite a bit of time, you know, in the outdoors, which is, I think, equally educational. And then apply those, those lessons, really to, you know, landscaping the campus here at Temple. I know after bringing my students down when I was teaching at Temple, I would bring the students down and you would do a wonderful tour for them and talk about some of the challenges that you have on the campus. But one of the real pinnacles of your collections down there is a, is a grove of European birch. And when you stand in that grove, you never even feel like you're in the city. It's like being transported to some other world. And I know it takes a lot to keep those kind of trees alive in that circumstance. So can you give us a little bit of background about that landscape, which is in the Founders Garden? Yeah, that's right. The Founders Garden, named after our founder, Russell Conwell. And then there's been more recent redevelopment around the perimeter of it that uh, they refer to as O'Connor Plaza. So the project was originally designed by George Patton, um, George Patton Landscape Architects here in Philadelphia. I believe it was installed somewhere right around 1970, give or take, um, the hardscape and the plantings. Um, I've seen some photographs of those weeping European birch, um, you know, from that time frame, the early 70s. And it's an interesting time because we finally met the decline of those trees, finally seeing it on the, the south side. You know, there's two groves. And the south side grove, we've got substantial amount of, of tree death coming out of the winter and into the spring. So, you know, those trees, they were selected and planted at a time when chemical dependency, <laughs> you know, wasn't necessarily a dirty word, right? I'm imagining in the 70s, they were probably using things like Saigon and Lindane to, yes. you know, keep the bronze, keep the bronze birch borer off, keep, keep the leaf miner off. And then in, in more recent years, uh, you know, since I've been here, we... We've had to treat them with merit to keep those same insects off because for people who aren't familiar with Philadelphia, you know, we've got all the urban heat island effects and drought. You know, the conditions in southeast Pennsylvania aren't really amicable to our, you know, our native uh, canoe birch either or paper birch. Uh, you know, you, you go travel a few hours north into the into the Poconos and they're everywhere, but trying to grow those in the city is also a challenge. So it's uh, really a case of the wrong wrong plant for the location. But having said that, they have done remarkably well for somewhere in the vicinity of 50 years. The north half of the grove continues to soldier on, but we're at the point where, you know, as iconic as those trees are in that space, we're obviously considering alternative trees to reestablish the south grove and then obviously, you know, eventually reestablish the north grove. 
they are among the you know most memorable and iconic trees here, but I think they've just reached their end, you know. Yeah, and <laughs> and, we, and we make better choices. You have some other iconic trees too. Um, the beautiful ginkgos in front of the president's building, which seem to be as happy as can be, and they are quite attractive. Yeah, we we have some large ginkgos, all male at this point. Um, we're down to everything that's left is male, so we don't have the seed drop that you get on the females anymore. Uh, willow oaks generally do pretty well here. Um, we do get some chlorosis, but some of them, given good soil and enough lawn, we've got some tremendous, tremendously sized willow oak. And I, I think you know iconic groves of the future. We've planted some taxodiums on campus that are doing really well, and you know they really put the size on pretty quickly. So like the taxodiums at Morgan Hall, now that's landscape on structure, so they have limited soil, but so far they've really put size on and it's really kind of a, a striking, striking grove. So yeah, I look forward to what the campus looks like in a, you know, in a few decades of some of the, the trees that we've planted in the last 25 years that I've been here, you know, achieve even greater size. I mean, it's, it's pretty fun to see trees that I planted a couple of decades ago, you know, really start to function. You know, I can, ha I can have lunch in the shade <laughs> under trees that I, I planted, which is yeah. always, you know, that's pretty neat. You, you can't imagine that when you start off in this field that that's going to happen. But the next thing you know, there you are. That's really amazing when you can sit under a tree that you've planted. Yes. With the uh, birches, Glenn, I, I imagine you provide a lot of uh, input as to where the campus might go. I mean, uh, any early indicators on how you might try to replicate that birch collection? Not yet. <laughs> we're really, yeah, we're, uh, yeah, we're really just starting to think about it. We just really been sort of faced with it here very recently. And right. So it's a, yeah, it's a topic that we're just beginning to address. I imagine you pretty regularly in your career have had to sit down with uh, the campus architects and realize that certain trees or a collection might be under the gun, so to speak, in terms of possible removal. I, I just wonder, does Temple have anything in place that kind of, for lack of better words, is a tree protection ordinance to preserve what you have in terms of green space? Because it is a very urban campus and, and it's very much an emerald jewel, you know, in the midst of our, an old industrial city. Well, of course, you know, in, in the city of Philadelphia, we've got the heritage trees list. So any species that's on the heritage tree list, uh, you know, of a, of a qualifying size um, is, you know, obviously more challenging to remove and, and, and that aids preservation. The, the biggest challenge here, you know, to your point and working with, you know, architects over time is just that the, the campus has had to evolve and it's done so substantially, you know, during my time here. There was a building boom and a concurrent planting boom in the 60s and 70s, right? And then there was a bit of a lull say through the 80s, early 90s. And then development really exploded again around the time I got here in the late 90s. You know, obviously when we look at a site, there's always a desire to save, you know, any sizable tree really, <laughs> given what a resource they all are here in the city, you know, whether street tree or, or a, you know, a lawn tree. Yeah. But if space is at such a premium that quite often it's been just completely impractical maybe to accomplish, you know, what they had hoped to in development. And so I, I think the main thing is, you know, I know during my time here that we've added a lot of trees to the campus. And I, I think that's the main thing. Obviously, I would love to preserve, you know, whatever we can, but we try to put back more than we take out. That's a good rule of thumb. Right. 
I had the experience just uh, earlier in the summer, it might have been late spring, uh, we had an event to attend at the Wagner Institute. So we opted to take SEPTA from our neighborhood. Hadn't been on campus for a while and just crossing it on a uh, Saturday afternoon, it, it really looked great. And um, I, I told Eve about it the following week. I said, I hadn't been on campus in, for a while. And, you know, I don't want to name drop on other universities in this city, but the vibe there, Glenn, was really good, really peaceful, a lot of green, you know, a bonafide campus green, which I think I appreciate what you're doing there. It looks fabulous. Well, I appreciate that, Hal. I think it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we're here to talk primarily about trees, perhaps, but obviously, you know, all the underplantings in horticulture, uh, you know, it's, all, it's all part of the package, isn't right. it? And I can just tell, tell you anecdotally that whether it's administration, faculty, students, or, or visitors, people really home in on, you know, what they're really talking to us about are, yeah. you know, the flowers, whether they be annuals, perennials, you know, flowering shrubs, flowering trees. When, when it comes to the trees, people sort of notice everything up to about 10 feet, right? They see the trunk <laughs> and then there's a, hopefully there's a puddle of shade, right? right? But the only people walking around with their neck bent backwards looking up to see how the trees are doing is, are the folks on my, you know, horticulture management team. And so myself and, and Rich and Sean, um, and, and boy, I couldn't, I couldn't do it out without the, you know, the team that I have and the, and the staff and the grounds crew. You know, it's, yeah, it takes constant vigilance. Obviously, you know, being in the urban environment, our trees are under stress. So even the best well-chosen species, you have more problems with deadwood and decline and dieback and that sort of thing. So it, it takes a lot of vigilance. Sure. And then, you know, if, if a tree sheds a limb in the urban environment, the chances, you know, given the density, the chances of injury or damage are that much greater as well, you know, right, versus even a more suburban environment. Right. So. It's kind of like one of those things where, you know, you put someone in a space and, and they're like, I, I like it here, but I can't quite quantify why. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the trees are playing a really important role, but people don't always articulate that to us. You know, they're more focused on sort of the ground level plantings. And along with that, um, one of the things that we've tried really hard to do here with regard to trees and the underplantings, right, is we've tried to have both areas of sun and areas of shade. When you're in an urban campus with all these tall buildings, finding shade is not a challenge. You know, it's actually can be more of a challenge to find a sunny spot, you know, in some of our courtyards and so forth. Yeah. So we try to be really judicious about, you know, sort of grouping trees, clustering trees and groves and also having open areas. And, you know, we need those open areas also for recreation, setting up tents, events, right? You need some free space. And also, and I think this is really important, there have certainly been people that have talked to me that have really advocated for just gridding the campus with tree plantings, right? Sort of edge to edge, of, you know, mm -hmm. really, really foresting it out. Yeah, yeah. And I've been on campuses and I've been on properties like that. And, you know, the thing of it is the biodiversity that you can grow under that then is much narrower. So, you know, the, so the floor that you can grow in under the, and under that canopy is, it's a bit narrower. And I, and we, I think it's great to have the diversity, you know, we have shade areas, you know, we can grow those plants that prefer shade. And then we have sunny areas where we can have diversity. We can have things that, that require sun. And it also contributes really strongly to how we 
go about being proactive with replacing trees and having a diversity of not just tree species, but tree ages on campus, right? Kind of the strategy that we'll employ is, you know, we, we may develop a new courtyard and we may sort of cluster the trees off in the corners and around the edges in little groves and leave the center open and sunny, right? So maybe 20, 30 years down the road, you know, you walk into that space and you say, boy, you know, these trees are really kind of at their prime or maybe starting to go past their prime. Well, now you've got this central location where there's no root competition with the mature trees. You've got full sun, right? So you sort of reverse the process. And we've done that quite a few places here. So, you know, then the next generation of trees, rather than trying to establish them under the shade and in the root competition of the existing trees, you can establish those in the center. And then as, you know, as the trees around the edge start to age out, you've already got the next generation coming. And of course, it changes the character of the space at that point as well. I just feel that, you know, it's so difficult here to establish trees anyway with, you know, <laughs> all the drought and soil issues. When you add shade and root competitions yeah. to that, it's really difficult. And of course, we all know, you know, the trees that you get too tend to be a lot more sort of open and, and spindly, you know, underneath like that as well. It's not, certainly not rocket science, it's pretty basic, but it satisfies all those different things, you know, that, that users want, right? They need open space for events and, and just to sit in the sunshine. Yeah. You know, I, I've been on campuses where, you know, you had acres and acres of ground covers because they couldn't grow any turf, you know, but it's a little hard to have an event, you know, in a ground cover bed, right? So we do need some turf, you know, given its flexibility for setting up tents and having events and things like that. Your containers, and you're talking about people seeing everything at eye level. Glenn is quite an artist when it comes to creating winter planters to give interest to the campus. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, containers in the wintertime that you focus on while the trees are either evergreen or deciduous around you. You're creating these beautiful floral arrangements in these big concrete planters. Sure. Well, that's that's the Longwood Gardens influence right there. <laughs> There's really nothing more to it than that. You know, prior to my student years at Longwood, I don't think I ever would have known that, you know, such a thing was possible. And, you know, you see it all around the, the, the city and so forth. People will put some evergreen prunings in a container. We just sort of took it to the next level, you know, if you will, which is, you know, we're, we're very, very urban here, right? And very, very developed. So anything that we can do to, you know, give it that little bit extra, and I was just really fortunate having come through Longwood um, and seeing them use, you know, more eclectic materials, you know, in their winter containers. Uh, because let's face it, you know, I mean, once once your fall annuals, you know, perhaps are, 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 are frosted over, you know, I mean, it's a long time until spring, right? So we, we started off with using, uh, we would save some of our pruning, you know, until, uh, until fall, late winter. So in the first couple of years we did it, we used entirely prunings from the campus. And then we um, got a lot of positive feedback. So we started exploring you know, further. And over time, we just developed quite a list of things that actually uh, can last a surprisingly long time. If you just arrange them you know, in a pot of soil and let them sort of freeze in place. And so, yeah, it's, hmm. it's been fun to experiment. And I, at this point, you know, I've got a long list of things that work. And so every year I can try a few things that may or may not work. And if they don't work out, it's not really that noticeable. So, yeah, it, I guess it's become a little, a little bit of a signature. And we do get a lot of, of positive feedback for the containers. Well, that's what I was going to say, that I've never seen a university campus that have containers as beautiful as the ones you have. Thank you. <laughs> um, so that's just a shout out to you. There's also something else that 
in your background, I have to mention is the Pennsylvania Big Trees Organization. And you had said that you were actually working with the coordinator, Aaron Greenberg, who we've had on our podcast. Tell us a little bit about that and what you're doing with the Big Tree Project, Pennsylvania Big Trees. Sure. Well, my first contact with PA Big Trees, I mean, I, I was obviously I was aware there was you know, such a program, but I spotted a, an unusually large Atlantis growing in a parking lot in North Philadelphia, North 13th Street and only actually on the Einstein Hospital campus. And it really struck me how, how massive this Lanthus was. So I went online to you know investigate whether it was had been nominated or registered or anything. So Scott Wade, who was the coordinator of, for the program at the time from Longwood, he met me and my assistant Rich Hoover from here at Temple on site, and we did some measurements, and we discovered that it was indeed the, the largest in the state. Wow! And so yeah, that was and that was a few years ago. Incidentally, as Scott was leaving Philadelphia, he also stumbled on what turned out to be the largest Polonia. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, in a, in a park up around Roxborough area, East Falls. So that was my first introduction, you know, to big trees. And I asked Scott a little bit about it, and he mentioned that he was looking for a new volunteer coordinator, which ultimately became Aaron. And so Aaron uh, trained myself and my partner, Michelle, in how to measure trees. So we became volunteers a couple of years ago. And it's been great fun, you know, you get fresh nominations in that no one's seen. So we sort of, tra we travel around the state a bit anyway, so we'll go here or there. And you meet some really interesting people and, you know, measure the trees. And, and people have a very vested interest in every point. They want to squeeze every point out of the oh, tree. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're keeping a close eye on you sometimes, <laughs> especially if they know what number they're trying to beat, you know, from the website. Yeah. And uh, so it's, you know, we measure new nominations and then also any tree that is already on the site, perhaps hasn't been or measured for five or 10 years. It's always desirable to go out and remeasure trees that haven't been seen in a while, make sure they're still there, make sure they're still in health and uh, update the measurements. And um, it's been great fun. I can't imagine not doing it. <laughs> I really, uh, I, I hope I continue to do it. And uh, I want to put in a bit of a plug too. I spoke to Aaron recently and he has a new baby. Yes. <laughs> right. So he's very busy. Right. And he is actually looking for a new coordinator for the PA Big Trees program. So I would suggest anyone interested, reach out to him, um, which you can do it at pabigtrees at gmail.com and start a conversation. How's that Ilanthus doing? Have you seen it lately? It's actually seemed to have done a pretty good job of shaking off the lanternflies. Yes. Yeah, at least, you know, the, right. through last year. And Einstein's actually taken great interest in it. You know, we let them know what they had. They didn't know what they had. And so they, they, they understand what they have now. And, um, you know, they understand the context of it, right? I mean, obviously, it's an invasive plant, but... At the same time, I think it's an invasive plant, safe to say, that's probably entrenched here and going to be with us. And as a just a magnificent, huge organism, you know, it's just undeniable. And I found some old historic photos from the city that it looks like you can see it in around 1956. It seems to be present on site from what I can see. But I think it's, it is feasible to think that that could have actually been planted, you know, from the time when it was still a, a tree that you might actually choose to, to plant on purpose rather than a, a volunteer. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's pretty amazing. I did happen to notice a sizable one. Uh, Eva and I were talking about campus trees at, at State College. There's a nice Ilanthus on the State College campus, too, at Penn State. 
that it's funny, you know, these things I think are just hiding in plain sight. <laughs> well, we also have to think that they're part of our city's history and our and our forefathers. I mean, as much as we would try to get rid of them, the historical significance far outweighs um, the invasive nature of it. And look where they are invasive to. It's usually a heavily limed community, which is the city in concrete. So that's what I think of when I think of Atlantis. You know, they, they are real pioneer species. They can tolerate a lot of nonsense from the city that most other trees can't handle. I mean, if we could ever come up with a cool selection, we could name it after <laughs> Doug Talame, you know? Ilanthus altissima, Doug Talame's delight or something like that. I think I would rather call it William Hamilton Select or something like that. Who, who actually brought it into the country. Yes, there you go. So give us a little bit more information about the work that you do and also maybe some of the other things that are not related to your work that you could share with us with regard to trees and environment. Sure. Well, you know, here at the university as the department head of the grounds department, it's, it's everything from snow removal to pressure washing of hard surfaces, right? You know, it's, it's certainly an expansion over my, you know, my early horticulture training. It's really all, everything from the, from the building facade out is sort of up to us. And I think the thing I probably enjoy the most, though, obviously, is the, the horticulture aspect of it. And um, there have been quite a few opportunities over my career here to design new landscape areas entirely from the ground up myself, which is a lot of fun. And then, you know, install those and watch those grow. Quite often with the newer construction, we, we find ourselves working in conjunction with landscape architects. So I do a lot of these sort of liaison with, you know, landscape architects that have been hired. It's an interesting relationship. I think both of our roles are really important. I, I value their role as space creators, right? And their role as, as hardscape designers and getting the soils right, the drainage right, the grading right. Those things are all really in their wheelhouse, right? And, and not in mine necessarily. But then when it comes to plant selection, I often find that they're overly optimistic about what will actually grow <laughs> in the city. You know, I spend quite a bit of time in, in the wilder areas of Pennsylvania. And even when you find these plants in nature, some of our natives are very, very specific about exactly where they are going to site themselves, you know. So I've had to temper some of the optimism. Uh, and sometimes I sort of let it run. And yeah, sure, we can try Mount Laurel for the third time. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and see, <laughs> you know and see, see how that works out. Another thing that I often have to do is just remind them that the project area is just that, right? It's a small postage stamp in the larger campus. And I don't necessarily need a ton of biodiversity on every little project area because we have an entire campus to manage. And in some cases, I don't even need four seasons of interest in a particular area. Maybe we can make a bigger splash with just fall color in that area. Maybe we can make a bigger splash with just spring flowering in that area. You know, so it's always um, reminding them that their project fit, has to fit into the overall context of the campus. So typically what that looks like is I'm presented with their sort of initial plant list and I say, all right, let's reduce that by about two thirds, <laughs> right? You know, it's like, let's pick, you know, one plant for each function that we need and just simplify, simplify. Yeah. The other thing that we've found is that, you know, and, and, I, and I get it, right? They're interested in that project looking fantastic for the grand opening. 
right? The grand opening photograph. But oftentimes that means planting larger trees than we would really like to see go in the ground, right? You know, so it's greater expense up front. You know, it's a lot more labor and equipment to plant them, slow to establish, can be difficult to find a match if you need to replace them, right? You know, you, you start off with a three inch caliper, three and a half inch caliper tree. And, you know, two years from now, some have taken off a few die. Now you need a four and a half inch caliper tree to match. And, you know, good luck with that. Right. Yeah. So we've, um, yeah. In, in the context of trees, really sort of like a two, two and a half inch tree or a two and a half to three inch tree. It's just so much easier all the way around. And they establish so much, you know, so much better. And then probably the last thing that we've been a little bit at odds with is, you know, the, the sort of the new school of, of underplanting design where you've got a matrix of two, three, four, you know, herbaceous perennials in particular, right, sort of all planted together. That's really proven to be difficult. What I find is that while aesthetically I really like those designs, maintaining those designs is a real challenge, particularly in that the folks that have the knowledge and the skill set to maintain a planting like that aren't in the labor end of the industry anymore, right? <laughs> We're in the management end, right? So you have a, a planting of three or four or five perennials and it emerges, you got all these rosettes popping up in the spring. Well now introduce two or three or four kinds of weeds into there, right? And <laughs> tell one of your staff to weed that. And they're, you know, it's, it's sheer terror, you know, because they just look at that and they're like, I don't know what comes out. I don't know what stays, right? And then managing a planting like that over time, even if you can keep the weeds out of it, right? Some of those plants are going to be a little more aggressive, right? So you need to be a little heavier on editing of those plants than some of the other plants. And unfortunately, the, the, the people that can make those decisions, most, you know, don't have their hands in the soil anymore, right? And so what we've advocated for is, hey, you know what? If we take the same six perennials and we put them in a nice sweep or a group or a mass, it's the same biodiversity, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've got the same number, we've got the same of, of plants, we've got the same number of species out there. And what it comes down to is I can put even a student worker into that planting. And if, if it doesn't look like the other 300, you weed it out, right? And then it also makes things a little bit easier in terms of, you know, as we all know, some perennials, you know, look great through the season. Other things, maybe, you know, they, they sort of fry or they look a little objectionable. Well, if you need to edit them out of a mixed planting, it's hand pruning one stem at a time, right? But if it's a big sweep or a big drift, you can just go in there and, you know, mechanized equipment, take that, take that planting down, refresh that planting, Right. So that's been a bit of a sort of stylistic debate, you know, that we've had with some of the landscape architects over time, because frankly, we just we really can't we can't properly manage the matrix plantings, you know. So I always say it's a little less, you know, in the kind of context of the day. Right. It's like a little less Pete Udolf. Right. And a little more Ohm Van Sweden from back in the 80s. And, you know, they were really famous for big drifts of perennials. Right. But there's a few other things, too. You know, those big drifts tend to read a lot more dramatically in the landscape. And one of the things I think about, a lot of the users of this campus don't enjoy this campus the way that I'm able to, where I can get up at any time, leave my office and walk through the campus landscape. A lot of folks come in in the morning and they're stuck in one office or one room all day, right? So the view 
maybe from the sixth floor down onto the campus ground plane, what does that look like? And, you know, I would argue that those same six perennials arranged in, in drifts, when they come into bloom, I find that a lot more striking visually than when they're all mixed together in a matrix. So that's a little bit about probably one of my, my primary roles here, you know, is certainly on the design end. And it does involve a lot of work with landscape architects. And it really is just about just about mutual respect for each other's sort of skill sets. We couldn't have the great projects we do without their input. And then on the other hand, you know, everyone has to, 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 to listen. And we, we've, I've had such a depth of experience here, you know, with what really works and doesn't work. So it's, a, it's just a little bit of everyone contributing what they know best. Okay, so one of the things that I used to like about coming to visit you with my students, Glenn, is your practicality of management and your realism about management, where realism doesn't always translate well to some people. And the students would say, wow, that makes a lot of sense, you know, that he only has maybe five different types of plants planted in here because he doesn't have a trained crew to weed. And in order for the place to look good, you have to know what to weed out and what to keep. And like you said, you don't have a skilled labor set, and that makes all the difference in the world, which brings me to landscape management plans. I know in Europe, and you know in Europe, that every landscape design has a landscape management plan and how that is carried out. But having that landscape management plan also helps you to figure out cost and the amount of people that you need to have to take care of it. And we don't do that here in the United States as much as we should by having a landscape management plan that actually gives the landscape architect the answer of how much it's gonna to cost to maintain something that they design. And you in the field yeah. are actually making that call because of all the years of your experience of being in the field. And that's one thing that I, I think is invaluable is, you know, it's great to have somebody who's in theory or they're actually practicing design but they don't have the field experience that you may have. And that certainly makes the difference of a successful landscape versus a non-successful landscape. And that's an education I received here, by the way, in the field. At right. I was that overly optimistic person 25 years ago who tried this plant and that plant no doubt. And, and then tried it again and tried it in a different situation and tried it with irrigation and the campus and the city have taught me, you know, what, what works and what doesn't. And sometimes you're surprised, but we've got, we really have everything against us, right? We've got, you know, drought and urban heat island effects, you know, especially during establishment, those are challenging. So we have three mobile watering tanks that we drive around. And as you can imagine with the drought we're having right now, those three mobile watering tanks are, are out there all, all day, every day. Uh, and of course we use mulch we use gator bags. Um, in the older areas of campus, we've got poor soils, you know, very variable soils. I mean, you could take a soil test every, you know, 15 feet and it's wildly different in, in some areas of campus. So we see iron chlorosis on sensitive species. Cornell structural soil is working out really well for us um, with establishment. I'm gonna be a little curious, you know, as, as the trees move beyond their trenches and out into the native soil, we'll see, but it certainly seemed to help us get things established. So that's been a success. We've got road salt. Here on campus, we use calcium chloride on our walkways, but the city and state, of course, use road salt. Car collisions, you know, especially on Broad Street, we lose trees to car collisions. Uh, vandalism, 
Usually that's just the, the lower branches get broken on young trees. We've got overhead utility lines to, to prune clear. We've got underground utility excavation, <laughs> the cutting roots, clearance for, you know, clearance for signage, clearance for lighting, clearance for security cameras. So all, every kind of abiotic stress that you can, can imagine. Um, I think the one thing that I feel like we have less of are insect pests. And I attribute that, I, I guess, mostly to our isolation. You know, we're a little bit disjointed from, you know, other extensive plantings. And, you know, I give the example of Emerald Ash Borer. You know, it, it took, you know, Ambler Campus is only three miles from here, but it took about three more years for Emerald Ash Borer to, to hit Maine Campus here in the city. Fortunately, we don't have that many ash. It's interesting, as we plant more trees in the city of Philadelphia, I wonder if that sort of isolation that I've had all these years is going to, is going to change, you know, that, that as, as we increase mm -hmm. canopy, you know, that, that, that advantage that we did have might go away. So it'll be curious to see. That's interesting. How long have you been using the Cornell structural soil? The first time we used it was when Morgan Hall dormitory was built. And I'm going to say that was somewhere in the neighborhood of 2008. And then we've used it on a few projects since then. Now, mind you, that's also coupled with doing, you know, a nice, generous trenches, continuous trenches, right, where we have two or three, you know, trees um, planted in one continuous trench. Of course, the nice thing about Cornell structural soil is the fact you can compact it and have paving on top of it, right? And then we we also most of our right. most of our trees have have an iron tree grade around the top, right, right, which works really well for us, for our, our situation. Um, and of course we maintain those, you know, we make sure we cut the, the grates wider as the trees grow. And so, yeah, Cornell Structural Soil has worked out great. At the New Charles Library, they did something a little bit different with the street trees on 13th Street side. The landscape architect actually specified something, I'll say sort of akin to like a, a gabion basket, right? Essentially like a cage so that the paving is more or less supported by this cage, right? And the, and the forces, the down forces of the paving and compaction are sort of trans, transmitted down the sides of the cage to avoid compaction of the soil. So that, that's gonna be interesting over time to see how that performs. We've got five black gum and we've got some willow oak um, that are planted in that situation. We're seeing a little iron chlorosis on the willow oak um, the black gum are doing really, really well. But, you know, the thing I think about is that's great, but those, those solutions are expensive, right? Those solutions are not readily available to, say, the average person who wants to put a tree out there on their sidewalk, right? So as, as wonderful as those solutions are, I, I think that low-tech solutions that will work for, for the average, you know, resident, I think those are, are really important too. And a lot of that Let's face it, right? I mean, a fair amount of that is just good species selection. Right. Right. I feel like if you know that your only option is to plant more or less in what you've got on the site, then accommodate that in your species selection. But on the other hand, if you're taking the trouble and you can create a better environment, to me, then you really want to plant a tree that you can't have necessarily in the city where you're just going to sort of dig a hole and say a prayer, right? So I think, you know, sort of simple solutions that are available to the average person really deserve a lot of focus and talk as, as much as some of these high-tech solutions that are expensive, right? Uh, innovation with the Gabion box, 
what was the actual box filled with? Was it another aggregate? Yeah, if I recall, they also made use of a, of a structural. So I can't remember if that was Cornell or not, but well, what do they say? A belt and suspenders, right? They, they didn't just do one or the other. They tried to attack it, you know, from both, from both angles. So you're, in other words, you're telling us that your, your, your campus is one big experiment. I, mean, I think that's, <laughs> we're getting, we're getting better and better at it. And we, we still learn hard lessons too, you know, there have been some projects where we've sort of stretched a little bit and sometimes it works and sometimes you sort of get nipped back, you know, either in plant choice. You know, I think there's a certain optimism that if you do all this site preparation, that that's going to solve everything, but it doesn't solve mm -hmm. urban heat, heat, heat island effect and things like that, right? Even weed competition, the, the weed competition here is just, it's just unbelievable, you know? And the way that those weeds can penetrate you know, even ground covers and things like that. You know, I've got an embankment of Rus Aromatica Grolo, right? You know, <laughs> the dwarf fragrant sumac. And I mean, the weed trees just laugh at it, right? You know, you just, it, you weed it, it looks great for like two months and then all the usual suspects start popping up through it. Polonia, Lanthus and mulberry and paper mulberry. You know, it's like a, it, it seems they actually prefer to germinate, Yeah. you know, in that, in that stuff, so creates the perfect seed bed it for them. sure seems so yeah since we're recording in august in philadelphia and having a pretty good hot weather event with your watering crews are they using like overtop techniques with a hose breaker or do they inject water or is that a yeah we're, we're doing um all just over the top with a hose breaker yeah, I've got okay. uh, a couple different tanks, but basically sort of we've, we've kind of found that the sweet spot is like a, sort of a 300-gallon tank. We've got them outfitted with large diameter hoses, so we're putting a lot of volume out, you know, minimal pressure, putting a lot of volume out. And, of course, we do use gator bags. You know, we have the, the five-gallon gator bags. It's partly because we're doing a lot of mixed plantings on the watering list, so they've got to have the ability to water the trees, but then also water the shrubs and the perennials and so forth that are in the same, you know, same landscape. Yeah, so it's a it's really a versatility mm -hmm. decision. Mm -hmm. And is that like a two inch diameter hose? Some of them are up to three. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Do you put anything into the water to diffuse it? Like more a surfactant to increase absorption? No, the we haven't been doing yes. that. Yeah, we okay. use the, the tried and true. You know, twice over, right? One pass over to break the surface tension, and the second pass yeah. over to. I am by nature a low tech. I yeah. almost always advocate the low-tech. <laughs> well, that, it certainly makes sense yeah. because of the amount of input that you have to create. Is that just good old Philadelphia uh, water then? Yeah. The best. There you go. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show here, Glenna. Could you share your favorite tree or group of trees that resonate with you? I think here on the campus, it, it would have to be the taxodium groves. Paley Library, right, which is right in the center of, of, of campus, it's the quote-unquote old library that's been replaced by the new library, the Charles Library. The Paley Building is under redevelopment right now, and one of the things that's in consideration is a, is a potentially a taxodium grove on the north side of that building, which would be sort of the what's currently the bell tower, could be the future campus green, right? When I arrived here, there was a massive taxodium, one single one, over near 15th Street, and where our, where Temple's tennis courts are, it was actually once a graveyard, oh. which some people, 
Some people know, and all the graves were, you know, everyone, it was all disinterred and all the coffins were reburied elsewhere. And they created the tennis courts in that area. And there was one big massive taxodium that was one of the only trees to survive from the cemetery with the development that took place. And then eventually, uh, as they further redeveloped the area, that, that tree had to go for make way for development, right? So I replaced the one taxodium, sort of an homage. I knew taxodium was going to do well in the area because this one tremendous tree was there. So I put five trees in, and I want to say that was around 1999. They've really, I was just really been struck at, at how well they've done and how striking they are. Around 2008, we, we did a grove, the grove at Morgan Hall, um, and we may do a grove at Charles Library. And, you know, before anyone thinks, wait, you know, pump the brakes, let's have a little variety. Um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. agree more, but you know how these things work. You start with the long list and you whittle it down, don't you? Right. Yeah. And sometimes there's just an obvious sort of an obvious choice. Right. So I think maybe because it was one of the first groves that I planted when I came here and I've enjoyed watching them grow. I think that's my, uh, particularly as, as our birch trees and founders garden, you know, sort of fade into the sunset. I think the taxodium groves here are probably the next, the next thing for me. Hopefully they'll find a, uh, a white bar. Exodium. Exodium. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on our podcast, Glenn. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, Glenn, you're a wealth of pragmatic information. Lots of wonderful information. Anybody who is listening who takes care of an urban campus, you can learn from Glenn. We all learn from each other, you know. Yep. That's really how, how this works. And for every observation that I've just made, I'm sure you can find someone that, you know, has had the ab absolute opposite experience, but that's how this works, right? It's really, it's. Yeah, well, and Eve is right. I mean, you really have one big experimental lab there on the Temple Main campus. It's an amazing amount of inputs and variables. So thanks again. Take care. Thank you, guys. Great to see you, Glenn. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.